So Founders Fund recently ran a panel on defense. Technology has changed the nature of the threats our society is facing. The defense industry is still generally approaching these questions with a kind of 20th century mindset. Before we can make any meaningful progress, we really have to rethink our entire approach to the question. Before we dig any further into the specifics of the technology and some of the developments we're starting to see on that front, we got to talk about the government. With the technology industry under an increasingly intense bipartisan scrutiny, with Google pulling out of Maven, and a small but very loud group of tech workers exacerbating the tensions here with Russian election tampering, we have a lot to parse. So we're releasing the entire panel, a conversation at the intersection of the U.S. government and the tech industry, or Washington, D.C. versus Silicon Valley. What follows here is the full recording. What? No, I, they got it. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Brian, one of the partners here at Founders Fund, where our mission is to invest in the world's most important and valuable companies. And we really appreciate you guys coming tonight to talk about what we think is one of the most important topics that there is in Silicon Valley right now. Um, you know, we've seen firsthand how companies like SpaceX and Palantir can really scale the positive impact of their technology by working with the government. And similarly, we're pretty concerned about the totally deteriorating relationship uh, between Silicon Valley and Washington on both sides. <laughs> and think that's a pretty important thing to fix because to tackle issues like national security, like infrastructure, right, like healthcare, like education, there's simply no one company that's going to do this. In fact, there is not a whole set of companies that's going to do this. You're not going to solve healthcare without partnering with the government. You are not going to solve national defense without working with the government. It is critical to the future. Um, and uh, the important thing to recognize is that this problem is huge, and it is, in fact, bigger than any one presidency, right? Like, any administration lasts at most eight years, but on the flip side, if we fall behind technologically um, by not partnering with the government, um, that, could la that impact could last for generations. And so, if you care about America, if you recognize that America is deeper than any one presidency, then you care about the collaboration and public-private pub, public partnerships between Silicon Valley and the government. Um, and we really hope that tonight's forum is a way to really start and trigger this conversation with everybody, and we're honored to have a bunch of awesome panelists up here um, that have years of experience bridging the gap between Silicon Valley and Washington. Uh, Heather. <laughs> um, Heather Podesta is the founder and CEO of Invariant, a top DC lobbying firm that has a ton of tech clients, probably in this room, as, as clients. Um, Trey Stevens is one of the partners at Founders Fund um, and also the co-founder of Endural, a portfolio company of ours that works on uh, defense innovation. Um, and then Chris Lynch is the founder and director of the Defense Digital Service, a team within the Pentagon that actually like uses technology to improve the lives of American citizens. And he's got a pretty fascinating story about where he just came from. And the panel is going to be moderated by uh, Dan Primick, um, he's the business editor of Axios and the lover of terrible, terrible football teams. So <laughs> without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the panel. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Thanks. To be honest, Dan, I resent anyone that says you have t a taste in terrible football teams because I'm a Bengals fan. So oh. there's well, nothing worse than that. Take a moment. Put your heads down. <laughs> 
that's important. That's, I'm sorry. I'm, I really am. I'm very sorry. Uh, everybody, thank you very much. I just want to start by saying uh, I'm, I'm not being an ass. I, my, I have questions on my phone. I'm not checking my email and, and text for the next uh, 30 minutes or so. Um, but th thank you very much, the, the three of you, for coming. So let me start. Um, everybody came from, well, you, you start, you didn't fly anywhere. You're, you're just based here. Heather, you came from D.C. Chris, you just came from Afghanistan, which we're going to talk about. And I came from Boston. But Heather, since you came from D.C., let me start with a basic question, which is how much does D.C hate Silicon Valley right now? <laughs> Clearly not the favorite child right now. Um, so I'm a Washington lobbyist, which means I'm basically a marriage counselor between Silicon Valley and members of Congress. As I try to explain business to politicians and politicians to business, and um, we've lived in these wonderful halcyon days of tech companies being the shiny object that members of Congress go running after and want to associate themselves with. Uh, that tide is turning. The anger is real. Um, but and bipartisan, correct? Yes, it is. It's one thing that it's everyone that seems agree. to agree on, <laughs> yes. That's Absolutely. nice. Yeah. Trey, for you, as the person who is here in Silicon Valley, as are, are most of the people are in San Francisco, and, and I know obviously working with Enduro, it's a different sort of relationship, but do you feel that? Do you think your peers you know, generically feel that, 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 that politicians who either used to ignore the Valley or simply come here to raise money and, and smile are actively trying to change it? Yeah, I always think that there's probably more nuance to this than we can just gloss over very quickly. Um, I, I definitely seems like the DC kind of culture is kind of rejecting big tech specifically. Um, so the large, you know, Fang uh, companies. It seems less clear to me that they have any sort of angst about small business. In fact, I think that generally speaking, the government loves small business. Uh, the problem is that that's turned into like Silicon Valley tourism. It's like a innovation theater thing that they do. So, um, you know, there's doesn't seem to be any real interest in working with companies that might eventually be Facebook-sized businesses, uh, but it doesn't seem like they have any angst towards the average startup. Is it, I, I wonder, and maybe this is a bit of a chicken and egg, but it used to be that, you know, the, the first rule of venture capital always used to be don't get into a regulated industry. And look, and, and Google and Facebook didn't think they were going into, quote, regulated industries, but ventures changed, right? Whether that be insurance or healthcare or certainly defense, that, that has changed. So has Silicon Valley, and I don't mean poke the bear, but has it kind of worked its way into this because there are so many companies now that are intimately involved with DC that DC had to pay more attention to it? Well, one of the things that I've seen is founders understand that if they are actively engaged in DC and working with policymakers early on, it helps with fundraising. It's like, oh, they get that Congress or this agency might be a client or a problem, and that early engagement indicates a level of sophistication that just didn't exist 10 years ago. Do you feel, and I'm going to come to you in a quick second, but I'm curious, let me assess, the, the, there's so much talk, and I, I was on stage last night with somebody who's in D.C. and a policymaker, there, there seems to be a sentiment that there is going to be some sort of privacy legislation. Do you, is there going to be privacy legislation? Is, what's it going to look like? And secondarily, is there going to be antitrust action? 
against God. No, I'm going to ask. I, I mean, you should. I'm going to say you know. <laughs> I roll Give me your from best the prediction. floor to the ceiling in terms of all those things even beginning to start next Congress. These issues are so big. Um, and, and we're starting to see little bits on privacy. But the fact that Congress has not been able to do a data breach bill in, what, over a decade? For them to tackle something as big as antitrust policy, I think we will have a lot of hearings. We will have legislative proposals. Um, but this is, uh, you know, folks understand how much they don't understand. Which so let me, which Chris, and so which brings me to you, which is, I mean, you know, the 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 standard for this was the Zuckerberg hearing, which was kind of this weird circus of, of senators asking questions they clearly hadn't written for themselves and then mangled pretty badly when, when they tried to say them. How I get tech savvy, and I hate to say that, but how tech you are, but in general. How ignorant, I guess, is our policymakers about the technologies they are maybe about to regulate or try to regulate and are certainly talking a lot about? Sure. So, I mean, I talk about this a lot. I think that a lot of people, when they talk about government and how government is functioning, I think it's really important for most people to understand that they're, the people like you and people like me, they're not in the room. They're not there. So people talk about policies and laws that are going to be passed. Imagine that people are going to write policies or laws around things that you intimately understand, and they know nothing about it. But they're still going to write it. They're still going to pass legislation. So if that worries you, welcome to my world, right? <laughs> that, and, and that's, aren't you in the room? Isn't I, that part of so your You're that, supposed to be in the but room. But I'm like a cold glass of water in the fiery depths of hell. I mean, that's like, it's a, it's a, it's a very small group of individuals who are able to be there. And yeah, it is. And, and that's, so a lot of time I spend time talking about really what I believe is the fundamental core of the issue, which is talent, people. So let's talk about that. And so you, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think I'm right. You started when Obama was still president. You stuck around for the Trump administration. So was the flow, I mean, the perception at least, is the flow of call tech talent or people who are interested in being in kind of nonpartisan federal government tech positions was, it was a bigger funnel when Obama was president. Is that fair? Yeah, that's true. How, how tight is that funnel now? How, what's flowing through it? Well, it is a smaller, uh, it's a smaller group. There's... And is it a supply order? Is it also a demand issue? In other words, there's much... The other thing is the Obama White House was considered to have much more interest in this than the Trump White House. So, you know, I'm over at the Department of Defense, and I think that at least on our end, it hasn't changed that much. And maybe that's just because of the fact that at the DOD, um, the mission is pretty much all over the world, right? It's a really big organization. Um, Three million people, not even including contractors. And... I think that for us, it's a pretty nonpartisan thing, so it's pretty easy to jump onto the mission of helping defend people and things like that. Uh, when you come down to White House uh, priorities, um, you know, it's a little bit harder for me to say because I don't really work too much on things with the White House. Um, but we have seen it is. It's, it's, it's harder to recruit right now, and I think that it's probably more important now than ever that nerds show up. Why more important now than ever? Because, you know, I, I, this is just my honest take. Um, you all have, and, I, and I'll just go back to what I said. There are people who are going to pass laws, they're going to write legislation, and it's going to impact you one way or the other. Like, it's going to get done, right? We're going to do all the things that government does, whether or not you come. 
So the thing that I believe is super important, and maybe it's just me being there and actually seeing it, right? I started this thing. I, I joined the uh, White House version of the team, United States Digital Service. Actually, Jennifer Anastasov here actually recruited me in, uh, along with Todd Park, who was the CTO at the time. Um, and it's been a fascinating thing to watch because over the past three and a half years, I've literally seen that we need a lot of work. Like, things that you think are working need a lot of help. Can you give an example? What's a, what's a big thing that's not working that we think might be? Uh, you know, I always talk about the very first project that I ever worked on. Literally, the first thing that I worked on was how to move service treatment records. Actually, I worked with uh, Evan Cook uh, over here on this. Um, uh, worked on moving service treatment records from the Department of Defense to the Department of Veteran Affairs. Now, that probably doesn't mean anything to you, but essentially, it's the thing that's the document that makes sure that you get your medical benefits and treatment and care as a veteran. And literally, in the case of what we found, a JPEG could end up being the difference between life or death for someone. That's crazy, because the, the Department of Veteran Affairs would only take PDFs, and doctors didn't know that, and they would scan things as JPEGs, and it could actually kill someone. Like, that's amazing. They could actually not get chemotherapy. That's crazy. So things like that, there's just so many of them, and the Department of Defense is so large, uh, it's like a it's like a country just by itself. Trey, I wonder, you know, running Enduro or helping to run Enduro, how how do you see the? And now you're not a government organization; you're a private company that happens to be working with the government. On the talent flow side, how do you see it coming into your company? Kind of in the sense of there is again this perception that there are a lot of people who might be very good for your company in terms of their skills who don't want to do it because of who you're working with, because of who your customers are. Yeah, if you think about the ideological persuasion as being like a bell curve distribution. There are like people at one side. But of not the here. I mean, it's a weird distribution here. Uh, I would actually think, I, I think it's actually probably closer to bell curve than people uh. think. There's like some small amount of people that are just never going to be interested in doing this work, um, particularly in a, in a partisan context where, that they're not comfortable with. But I think that's a pretty vocal minority, but it's still a minority. And then you have people on the other end that are like super patriotic, and um, they're probably already working for Palantir SpaceX, to be honest. Like, um, and, and that that's like a small. Do, do you think? And I'm asking you something that you might not be able to know because you'd have to survey it. But do you think the employee base at Palantir, the employee base at SpaceX, politically speaking, or, or maybe not partisan-wise, but political ideology speaking, is a lot different than the base at Google, the base at Facebook, the base at any really kind of generic tech company? There might be a slight variation, but to be honest, like uh, having been at Palantir, it's pretty close to a similar distribution. It, the, the thing, like what Chris just said, is that defense, national security is the most bipartisan of all branches of government. And so there are really patriotic people that kind of range across in ideological views. But th the biggest chunk in the middle is just people that need to be convinced. And I think that's where we're doing the worst job, is that we're just not convincing anyone, and so they're left kind of to their own devices. And so, you know, you know the... When you say we're not convincing, who's we and convincing them of what? Uh, I mean, I guess from this context, I'm speaking as a not official representative of the U.S. government. Uh, the I U.S. Agree. government, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, now it's official. Um, You've been deputized. I'm on the Defense Innovation Board, so I guess that kind of counts. Um, so the, the United States government is not doing a good job communicating to people that might otherwise be interested in, in doing work to help. 
I mean, how, so the obvious questions, it, it, it's, the, uh, it's the orange elephant in the room. How much of that right now, how much of the problem from your perspective is Trump, and not that it's a Republican-Democrat thing, but it's specifically a Trump thing. You worked on the transition. How much has Trump made, and you guys didn't exist before, but has made this harder? You, you said that defense is considered this kind of, this commonality, and I agree with that. But defense also plays into stuff that's happening on the border, and that's very Trump-specific. You know, I, I would actually kind of break down the uh, the Trump thing is you can kind of make that a reaction about a person. And as Chris suggested, it is a little bit harder as a result of that. But if you break break it down as like a um, well, it's a person, of, it's policies that come from a person. Sure. But, but what I'm saying is that if you break that down more about like changing views about nationalism, I think would be like an interesting way to frame this. Um, one of the things that uh, that Google CEO said in the context of the Project Maven stuff, which we may or may not get back to, um, was, you know, wouldn't you rather a globalist company like Google work on this than a nationalistic defense contractor? And so the, the kind of subtext there is that nationalism is xenophobia. And uh, and I think that's kind of the, the real push that you're getting is like, yes, is, it might be a reaction to Trump, but even more so than that, it's a reaction to like possibly like pushing back against the concept of a nation state. But it's also a reaction to the fact that we have been living in a really peaceful time period. Our homeland has not been attacked uh, in the way that it was in 9-11. And that was a huge call to arms. And that filled in that center where folks wanted to help American companies working on behalf of the country. And so just this quiet calm, I think, has led to a little of the flattening of that curve. That's interesting. You, you mentioned the Project Maven thing, so let me bring this up and, and kind of change this a little bit, which is to talk a bit. Trey, what's your perspective on kind of where we're at when it comes to employee activism within companies? But more importantly, is there a role for employees within a company to to be activists on issues that obviously obviously there's there's a role for things that a company is working on, but more broader than that to push their CEOs to take basically political stands on things. Is that is there from your perspective is there a role for that within companies? I mean, my very strong opinion is that the fact that we get to sit around and have these discussions and actually be activists within our companies is like this is exactly the values that we should be protecting. And uh, you know this this conversation doesn't happen in authoritarian China, and so I actually do think it's really important to protect the right of an employee to push back against their management when they think their management is doing something wrong. Now, the place where the corporate activism stuff gets a little messy is that it's really like also the responsibility of the company to clearly communicate to their employees what it is that they're doing, and so the employee isn't left to their own devices. Which can be tricky in defense, though. Because it they can't always be it as actually, transparent as they want. It actually to be. doesn't have to be as complicated as they make it. From what I understand about what happened at uh, at Google, there was a very very small number of people at Google that even knew they were doing work with the Department of Defense. That type of stuff doesn't have to happen. There should be there should be more open communication. And you know you get this kind of phenomenon where you have companies in Silicon Valley that are doing important work with the DoD and they frame it in ways that they think are going to be more palatable to their employees. Like, we're delivering water and medical supplies in Afghanistan. And really, like, they're just not telling their employees what's really happening, and it ends up biting them in the butt. Because when the truth does come out, now you have this messy situation where you haven't told people what it is that you're doing. And if you just clearly communicated and had an internal dialogue about the ethics of it and why it's good, why it's bad, why we've decided to do it, I think these problems would be a lot less severe. 
That's interesting. I mean, Chris, one of the things that I heard, and it was partially about the Project Maven thing, but I've heard it from other people inside of tech, kind of rank and file people inside of tech, is, you know, when even if the program, if there is transparency, if, if the employee feels they actually know what's happening, and if it is considered to them an inoffensive, call it an inoffensive, you know, moral or political thing, and, you know, a nonpartisan, they're there's still a concern, and this goes back arguably to Trump, depending, you know, for somebody who's on the left-leaning side or an anti-Trump side, that they are going to help on a technology side create something that could, after their hands are done with it, after the project's been delivered, get used in a way that they disapprove of. And it is kind of, it's kind of the, the old nuclear bomb thing, right? Like, oh my, you know, we built something and we didn't realize the consequence of it. Is that a legitimate fear that people have? I mean, <clears throat> speaking as the person who they handed over to. Sure. Uh, I think that we're giving the government a lot of credit. Uh, so what I see is a thing that is highly fragmented, highly uh, distributed, that is not uh, talking from one area to another and does not work. Uh, probably that seems exactly who you should give in powerful technology to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I actually, but it, but so, so here's the thing. So, and I, and I call that out. Because you know, I, I keep hitting this point, right? Nobody's coming to save us, and I, I believe that being at the table and being a person who can help shape and influence those things are really important. We had we had a project actually fairly recent, uh, recently where we we appointed a person on our team to be the moral uh, compass of the team to make sure that it wouldn't go into an area that none of us felt uncomfortable with, right? We don't. My team doesn't work on weapons. But we work on things to defend people, and we wanted to make sure that we put enough of a boundary around what we were working on. And I think that that's really powerful because we got to make that call, right? When you're not there, somebody else who you may not agree with in any way is going to be making those calls for you. Um, and, and I don't necessarily believe that we're at a place right now where we should be worried about the government, like becoming incredibly good at sharing things that are being built and coming up with some way to distribute it ac across the entire government, because I'm not seeing that. I think we're a pretty far no, that, path that, off. That might not yeah. happen, but but uh, but but somebody else takes over, you know, the administrations change or, or, or somebody gets fired. And it, I mean, somebody always takes over from the last person. Sure, but that requires still a lot of confidence that, like, we get it. And and quite you honestly, not, I would, you know, giving me much faith <laughs> in really anything. I'm, I'm telling you, on a plane home we tonight. need people like you and people like me to show up because... There, there truly are. There are just not a lot of technologists, not a lot of software engineers. There's not a lot. And, and, I'm, and I'm being honest. So there, we, we have lots of contractors. There are lots of contractors, traditional contractors, defense industrial base, all that kind of stuff. But what we don't have are people who become feds, right? I, I join for, you know, I'm on what's called a term appointment. Uh, who show up to do this thing. And that's actually the reason well, that digital goes, service is important. Which goes back to the way I, I started this and asking, how much does D.C. hate Silicon Valley? And I guess vice versa. And, and I, you know, when somebody yells at you, you yell back. I mean, we have a president who, who that's literally his mantra. Does the same thing happen then? It, it, the more pressure that comes from D.C., do you get less interest from technologists in working with the people who are yelling at them? Before we move on to that, I, I want to push back on your previous point. I, I think that freight... Yeah, about yes. the plane. I shouldn't fly home. You you made the you made oh. the point about someone new takes over. I reject that out of hand. Someone new doesn't take over. Some hundreds and hundreds of elected officials take over. Well, it depends. And we have what, a, no, depends no, 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 no. We have a system of checks and balances. Barely, you saw, not a, not in defense. What, Absolutely in defense. When's the last Who time passes the National war? Defense Authorization Act? When's the last Every time? year, Congress passes the NDAA. And when's the last time they declared war? 
it, it, I mean, that decision to go into places like Iraq and Afghanistan but is a legislative decision that's made by Congress, which we elect sometimes. hundreds of people into. To, to Trey's point, though, do, we, we always talk about a handful of people when we're talking about an organization that is literally managed and run day by day by three million people. It's three million people. That doesn't even include billion the dollars a year. Doesn't even include the millions and millions of contractors. So if anybody here believes that one, two, ten, twenty people are going to change the entire thing, good news. That's not going to happen. It, it does at the top. But wait, hold on. It does. It, no, stop. Hold on. It does at the top. There's a reason that hundreds of millions of dollars are spent on presidential elections. There's a reason but for that. But nothing that I'm working on. This is true. Nothing that I'm working on changed from one administration to the next. Nothing Not a single thing. Nothing you're working on changed. Where you're applying it could. But it hasn't. In this so, case, it so hasn't, wait, are it you suggest, Are you suggesting that the That's president what? is going to unilaterally go into the defense budget change the, the way that something is being appropriated and then impact the policy of how that appropriated technology is being used. No, I, I'm saying that there could be a technology that, okay, you are your company X, you work on a particular technology with you, uh, you're, and, and you do it under the, con- why do we need this? Chris's response, because we're doing X and X and Y in Afghanistan, and this is what the plan is, and then three years later, it's being used in a place that you did not expect it to be used. That comes from the decision of application. That does come from the top. It's what foreign engagements we get into. You know, we have no idea in 10 years, you know, we're partners with Germany now, which people 70 years ago would be shocked by. You don't know in 10 years where we are and why we're there. But who approves the budget to allocate the resources to go and do those operations? It's the, not the president. It's no. not the executive branch. It's but the co- legislature. Congress, in, I, maybe this has happened in recent memory, but I don't think so. I don't remember Congress killing an appropriations bill because they were upset at a particular mission we were on. But they so had to approve. They just so removed the, the, the lines the of funding. Trey, Trey, I mean, this is a small thing, and this is, we're, it's way off target. But, okay, and, and it was a political move, but you, know, you, you have military goes down to the border, right? And this isn't about technology. Congress didn't approve that. They didn't have to. They didn't get asked. They did, don't have the power to. They didn't approve it. It gets done. It's just done. That's a presidential choice. And there are authorities that are allocated to the military that have nothing to do with law enforcement on the border. Again, like you're conflating issues. You're making Trey, something something that it's not. Trey, I, 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 no, I'm saying that con- you said there's checks and balances on something like that. There are no checks and balances on that. And we have had plenty of milita- actual military engagements that Congress has had no say in. You know that. Plenty of them. Lots of them. I mean, Bush just died. Congress didn't allow them to go into Panama. Went into Panama. So way off topic, but nonetheless, I, uh, way down the weeds. But I will say this: I, I have, I have not seen. So to, to, I'm just going to take the straw man argument. Could something that we build today be completely used in a completely different thing in a very long time from now? Maybe, but. I, I think that it's such a straw man where I could say that right now you could literally impact or change people's lives, and I think that that's meaningful. And worrying about how something might be used in the future seems antithetical to how we build things out here anyway, right? I, I mean, if you think about how we build companies, how we build products, I, I think that that is we're, we're being way too far-sighted on something that is completely theoretical at that point. Fair. Uh, let me move on. And let, let me move on to something which is, you know, I asked about employee activism, but let me ask about kind of stuff coming from the top. And, and Heather, I, I wonder how you advise companies on this. There have been a lot of, uh, 
a lot of issues, kind of broader macro political issues, which kind of everybody in this room has opinion on, everybody around dinner tables have opinion on. And CEOs of companies didn't used to have to have opinions on the, I mean, they had them, but not ones they had to state publicly, certainly not on behalf of, you know, their 20,000 employees. What's your thought? But that's become a thing in the last few years. Is that a good development? What's your, when a CEO talks to you and says, my employees want me to take a stand on thing X, what do you say to them? So the line between politics and entertainment has disappeared. And so all of us are living sort of tweet to tweet. And for CEOs, this is a really um, treacherous landscape in terms of, okay, when do I speak up? And what issue, it's like, oh, a third of my employees are crying after the election. Do I say something? What do I say? Don't say anything. Um, all right, we have Charlottesville. Is this the moment a CEO is supposed to speak up? And you did see sort of a CEOs across the political spectrum speak up, give money. Um, and so coming into the last couple of years, we've had these series of activities where employees want to know where CEOs are. Border is another example. And it's like, do I march? Do I tweet to other CEOs that I'm going to go march, that I'm giving money? And at some point, you know, the, the shareholders, the investors want you to do your job and focus on the product and the service that you're developing and, um, you know, picking priorities and understanding that in this entertainment political world swirl that we're all living in, that it's okay to hold on to silence and really be selective in terms of when to weigh in. And you know, one of the things that I advise folks to do, CEOs in particular, is you've got to have a life outside of work. And you've gotta be committed to your local community in a way that doesn't reinforce your bottom line and that being engaged in the community is really, it makes you a better CEO. Great, how, how do you view this? And, and when you talk to your portfolio companies, you take Andrew out of it, but like, what's your thoughts on that? If, if a CEO came to you and said there was a particular policy, uh, I've got a bunch of employees who are upset about it. I'm personally, I, as a CEO, I'm personally feel very strongly about this. Do you feel that they should make a public statement? These are companies that obviously are already on Twitter. The CEOs are probably personalities of a sort at this point. Should they? Is it a question of size? In other words, it's different when your Facebook is compared to a 20-person you know, startup. What, what do you advise them to do? I mean, I think there's an impact internally, whether you're 20 or 20,000, like, to decide whether or not you need to say something. Um, there's also a difference between saying something to your employees and saying something publicly. Sure, but maybe your employees also need you to say something publicly to make a statement on behalf of the company. I, I don't know, it feels like a very case-by-case -case basis type thing. I don't think it's completely out of place for someone to say something if they feel like they should. Is it, is it really a new, and I wonder, is it actually a new phenomenon? I said it is over the last couple of years, or is it just that the way that it's communicated is now different because it's via Twitter, et cetera, in the sense of, I mean, companies for years have donated money to political candidates and to causes and to PACs, et cetera. So is it simply the, the difference that they used to just give lots of money and now they also have to add 140 characters to it? 
or whatever the hell it is now? We're definitely living in a world of greater transparency and the ability to get out a message very quickly. But we've, what we've also seen is as the communications department frets about how to do those characters, the news has moved on. And so unless you're going to engage immediately, uh, you don't need to talk about what happened 48 hours ago. It is short. It is quick. Chris, is there any, is there pushback from your perspective? So, you know, you get a CEO who comes out and makes a statement, um, say about a DOD policy, for example. You guys are trying to potentially work with these companies. You're kind of trying to work with everybody. Is there, is there pushback then inside, basically screw them? Or does that not happen? And I know that's a really binary question, but more of a sentiment. Does that build up? I, I mean, I, I, well, I mean, I don't, I don't really that that's as big of a thing just because of the fact that going back to how much of, so there's this thing in government, it's called acquisition, um, which is its own uh, terribly complex Byzantine little maze of things that you have to work through, which is basically mean like, how do we buy things, right? Like, how do we get a thing? And uh, it is intended to be an incredibly fair process. And so regardless of how all of those things pan out, um, it is supposed to be, uh, you know, somewhat abstracted from that. It doesn't resemble what any of you would ever do for purchasing in any other uh, part of your life. Um, and so the good of it is that it allows for, you know, regardless of what somebody says, is if they have a product that can actually fill a need, uh, they can still uh, uh, bid for it. Um, so that's how Congress has written all the legislative language. Um, so I don't know that I directly answered your question, but no. it, uh, it, it, I don't think that it really matters at the end of the day uh, on how the, the government purchases. Uh, where I think it does is how um, people perceive those companies, right? Yeah. So we have a few minutes left. I want to, I'm going to ask all of you this, but Chris, I'm going to start with you because you just came back from Afghanistan. I want, just, I want to hear from you guys what you think the most interest, either the most interesting project that you've, that you've seen, that you've been working on, that kind of is this intersection between technology and or Silicon Valley and DC, or where you see the biggest opportunity that's kind of empty right now. But I guess for you, I'm just curious what you were doing in Afghanistan. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, so the Department of Defense runs literally one of the most technical mission sets in the entire world, whether or not the technology is good, bad, old, or new, right? Um, and so I, I did. I just flew in today from Afghanistan. Uh, so that was a really long commute to come here. Um, uh, I think I'd probably beat everyone. He, be, he beat both of us. I think he I'd beat everyone. Ass. May have beat everybody time-wise in total in the entire room. Um, and uh, I was, or, our, my team was looking at a problem that we call um, green on blue attacks or green on blue violence. And that is a, a really... Um, Sadly, a uh, nice way of saying um, sometimes uh, when we have the coalition forces who are out in these dangerous places, um, the people, the, the forces that we're training up to run the country. So the, you know, the, 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 the mission in Afghanistan is not a war fighting mission. It's build a government and do elections and have a police force and um, have a stable government with uh, all these other things and, and, and a military and sometimes um, the wrong people end up getting next to the coalition forces and uh, they kill them. And uh, that's really, really heartbreaking. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was walking 
I was walking down a hall, um, and there were uh, just so you probably it was on the news. You know, you see when people when people um, uh, just a few, few few people were killed not too long ago, and they were their their portraits were up on the wall um, in a place that I was at, and uh, I find that really really hard. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, how does technology help that? Well, we do a lot of vetting when we bring people into the uh, the, uh, the the forces there in, in Afghanistan. And uh, not all the systems that we want are all connected. And uh, it literally results in people who have either uh, been turned um, or have gone in with bad intent from the beginning showing up and killing people. Uh, and these are people uh, who have families, kids, right? And uh, nobody there wants... Nobody, nobody out there wants... It's not a war-fighting mission. It's literally NATO allied forces, and they're literally there to try to build a country and then get out, right? Uh, so that's really heartbreaking. And maybe the best way that I can describe uh, what I do is I, I talk a lot about mission, and that's it. Uh, I think that we have an incredible mission because it's literally... It's so tangible. I have people who tell me, oh, I, I worked on medical systems and that will you know lead to someone's life being saved i'm like no 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 no. this is like you will be able to name the person whose life you saved and that is so tangible trey i'm gonna ask actually something slightly different because i'm running out of time but this was a conversation we were having over there before which is there was this sentiment that because uh, because silicon because technology companies and the US government military but also government in general have not worked together as closely as they could have that particularly when it comes to AI that the China is kind of leaps and bounds ahead or is moving leaps and bounds ahead do you agree with that and so is at this point just trying to stem that gap and is that gap insurmountable or is that kind of where we're heading yeah i think as chris hinted earlier on this ends up being a conversation around talent recruitment at some level um you know i, I think that culturally speaking the united states still has a tremendous edge in like caring about the values that we're protecting and having a culture of innovation um but we don't have civil military fusion right in china it's the same thing um vladimir putin has been going around to different universities technolo technological universities in russia saying these exact words, he who controls artificial intelligence will rule the world. And he's not saying that from a position of weakness. He's not saying like, and look, we're gonna lose, so. so. No, he actually believes that like, they're going to rule the world if they get this right. Um, software and hardware are two different things. Like During the Cold War, we, could, we had the resources to buy and bend more metal than anyone else, and we could take a huge leadership position in aircraft carriers and fighter jets and things like, things like that. In the modern era, software is cheap. And so if you have just a handful of really talented people, even countries like Iran and North Korea can compete in really scary ways. And so it's not necessarily that I think that we're, we're losing right now, but we're certainly not on the same trajectory as countries that have like kind of a mandatory conscription capability over their populace do. I'm also not suggesting we should have mandatory <laughs> conscription, uh, but, but you know, the strength of our force is that it's a volunteer force, but that means that we need to volunteer. Uh, Heather, a final question for you, coming from the D.C. side of this, which is, I mean, you know, Trey mentioned earlier this concept of nationalism, and is that, you know, anti-nation state or not? The, the real question then is patriotism, which is, from your perspective politically, is there an appetite for, and this is on both sides, for kind of converting, call it nationalism, into actual common patriotism, which seems to be what you're getting at, that, that what you think is actually needed, which is 
elite, which is political differences, but working together toward that common good. Is that possible or is that not coming? Because one person's patriotism, you don't, the other side has to fight against it, whatever version it takes. So as a member of the deep state, <laughs> I, I am actually quite Pollyannish on this point, which is- That's because you're in the deep state. Exactly, I am deep state, um, which is while people have different definitions that when it comes to the office of the presidency, our defense, our Congress, that Americans are unified and are looking for the best people to show up and the best ideas. But absent people being there and coming with solutions, it is a fact-free zone. And it is a place where good ideas do not generate on their own. And so I'm a big believer that Americans are united and that engagement produces better results. On that note, uh, thank you guys. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You are listening to Anatomy of Next.